the Clixie podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. I think the best advertising ever known will happen in the future and I just think it's going to look radically different. This is the Click Z Digital Marketing Podcast and I'm joined by Tom Goodwin. We'll be discussing the future of advertising and the technological and audience trends which advertisers need to understand. My guest on the podcast today is Tom Goodwin. Tom is the EVP of Innovation at Zenith Media. His role is to understand new technology, behaviours and platforms and ideate and implement solutions for clients that take advantage of the new opportunities that this makes possible. Tom's focus is leading the innovation and content wing within Zenith, unleashing the power of emerging platforms, content marketing, influencer programs and new media and devices to produce robust business results. So who better to talk to about the future of online advertising? Tom is also an industry provocateur and commentator on the future of marketing and business. And he's a columnist at The Guardian, TechCrunch, Forbes and frequent contributor to a host of other publications as well. He was voted the number one voice in marketing by LinkedIn with over 265 followers. I'm sure you're going to be having a few more at the end of this podcast, Tom. Um, and it also one of the 30 people to follow on Twitter by Business Insider and one of two top people in advertising to follow as nominated by Fast Company. Uh, so, Tom, welcome to the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. And two other things I saw on your LinkedIn profile, which I thought were really fun. At the bottom, you'd kind of shared these things people had said about you. You'd said that you'd be described as quite impatient, but very optimistic and without a great attention span. So I'm really optimistic that you're going to be able to hold our attention for the entire episode uh, <laughs> of the podcast. Um, before we get into hearing all your insights about the future of advertising, um, could we just find out a little bit more about you, how long you've been working in advertising, how you ended up in advertising, and then tell us a bit more about what you do at Zenith. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in short, I ended up because I think I belong here. Like, I didn't really have any firm idea of what I wanted to do after university, and I just tried different things. Uh, in retrospect, it looks like a mark of genius. It looks like I've gone on this really well-trodden, well-planned path but I've kind of generally gone from creative agencies to digital agencies, uh, then media agencies. So I, I feel like I've kind of created this perfect graduate trainee scheme over about 17 years. That's one long graduate trainee scheme. Yes. And um, and, and now I think, you know, increasingly it, it's rather strange that the industry is, is separated into these different strands. Um, but I have a role here where being close to you know, about $38 billion worth of investment globally, I'm hopefully able to have a bit more say in how we can bring about change and how we can do things which are more exciting than ever before. So the role head of innovation that you have, why does a media agency need to have a head of innovation? I think innovation is one of these scary titles that gets banded around quite a lot. And I think different people have different uh, expectations of what that means. For me, it's very much about understanding how people's behavior is changing, how people's expectations are changing and what technology now makes possible. Um, I think probably every type of agency needs to have someone that's spiritually in this space. Um, I mean, ideally, everyone would have this kind of attitude. But I think media agencies probably um, you know, need to have someone to challenge how they do things. Um, I worry sometimes in the industry that we tend to take what we've done before and kind of iterate slightly based on small changes we see. And I think increasingly, and I know this sounds quite bold, but I think we almost need to start with a blank sheet of paper. 
you know, mobile is now no longer a niche activity. We can't keep on sort of turning the dial up slightly. We should now be kind of creating advertising campaigns and products and experiences based around the assumption that probably for most of our people that we talk to, it's the most important device that they have. So we need to really sort of challenge thinking. And do you see the role of the agency evolving from being very much a sort of transactional uh, sort of buying media and planning media into something which is much more consultative and much more educational? A, a personal opinion, which is not one of, of Zenith Media, is that probably the roles of different agencies need to come together far more. Um, in particular, to have a media agency, a digital agency and a creative agency, I think it's, it's quite hard to sort of justify. It's a bit like having someone write the lyrics for a song, uh, someone write the score and someone decide what instruments to play separately. Uh, for me, the sort of medium term goal is that agencies should um, you know, all, all be thinking of each other and working as one. Uh, in a more sort of short term piece, I think we need to ensure that we're adding more value to the process. We, we can't merely be order takers uh, who take a strategy and sort of execute against it. We need to be mindful that the way that people are being influenced these days uh, and the tools that are at people's disposal now are vastly different. And um, having spent most years in creative agencies, I'm surprised that they haven't expanded their role to do more of this stuff. So there are lots of spaces, whether it's content marketing, native advertising, influencer marketing, modern PR, uh, messaging in the age of social. All of this stuff is kind of up for grabs. And since most agencies don't seem to want it, then I think uh, media agencies should probably stake a claim to being the experts in those areas. And what's the common currency across those different agencies? You mentioned you know, sort of a number of different media, um, classical creative PR content. I think what should be the common currency um, so sorry to sort of turn your question around a bit, is, is people. Like uh, as an industry, we've done a good job of aligning around our own interests. And I think client organizations have done a good job of segmenting themselves around sort of silos and business units and channels that means make sense to them. And are largely based on the sort of industrial sort of dynamic of the 1970s. And I think actually what we need to start doing and what we need to align ourselves around is people. You know, people do not consume social media. They just go on a website where they see all sorts of stuff that their friends are doing. Uh, people don't go on a mobile phone to do m-commerce. They just buy stuff. Uh, you, you no longer think about online dating. You just think about dating in the modern world. So I think we need to start um, a change of thinking away from channels and away from these unnecessary divides and actually start orchestrating ourselves around people and how do we make people... Um, have better experiences of brands and how do we help them make decisions. That's a great theme and I'd love to come back to that a bit later on when we're talking a bit more about what the future holds. But sure. just looking back on what's been happening over the last few years in the ad industry, could you maybe share what you think have been some of the biggest changes that have happened in the ad world? You know what, I'm going to be quite sort of contrary here and, and I don't sort of enjoy saying this, but I don't think we've changed that much actually. I think um, we've gone to a lot of conferences and we've said a lot of bold things and we've talked about things like reimagination and disruption and we kind of laugh at the blockbusters of the worlds for not seeing Netflix and we laugh at you know car companies for not making Uber. And actually, I think I think we've been profoundly uh, risk averse. I think we actually haven't changed that much at all. Um, so I will go on to be more helpful and answer the question. But no, that's a good I, don't insight. Think, I don't think we should kid ourselves that we've changed. 
Um, you know, largely speaking, we've sort of bolted digital on as like an extra supply specification. You know, when you now see um, a pre-roll, someone has basically taken a TV ad and just sort of checked that it's still going to work if it goes on a digital device. Yeah, they're like text specs. Yeah, we may, yeah, it's basically like a codec that's at the end of the process. Um, you know, so certainly in terms of the creative product, I'm absolutely staggered that we haven't invented a single new ad unit since the 1960s. Um, I think what we have seen, uh, and again, this is a personal opinion, but we've seen a complete obsession with data and with targeting and with ad tech. And I'm surprised that we've let technology mainly drive the very precise and sophisticated micro-targeting and micro-measurement of things rather than using it to create better sort of advertising experiences. So everything that we do is now about reaching sort of smaller numbers of people more specifically and more efficiently and then capturing as much of that success as we can through some sort of attribution modeling. Um, and without wanting to sound sort of contrary to the spirit of a media agency, I think we're probably going about a lot of this stuff wrong. I think m- more often than not, attribution is about, it seems is about capturing other people's success than it is about creating more success. Um, and I think most targeting is based on the assumption that, you know, wastage is an inherently terrible thing. Whereas actually I have rather sort of strange opinions that wastage is quite good. Um, you know, even, even people that can't afford luxury handbags need to know that luxury handbags are, are wonderful because the people who own luxury handbags want to feel better than those other people. Uh, I know that sounds quite obnoxious, but er- everyone in the world needs to know that Stella Artois is a wonderful beer because people drinking Stella Artois want to feel proud of their decision. So it's about the, the brand um, level of that sort of sales funnel that you need to build the brand awareness, but also the brand perception, even if the dollar you're spending there isn't going to lead to a direct conversion to a sale yours i think so my one of my favorite principles is the mcnamara principle based on what gets measured gets done and ever since these more uh precise ways of measuring things that have been introduced because of the digital age have come about we've become obsessed with the things that we can measure most accurately and the things that we can track most precisely and the things that we can affect the most quickly So we tend to get drawn into performance marketing where we're measuring shares and views and likes and retweets. And actually, often these things don't matter. Like the things that really matter are the long term sort of brand attributes, which are very fluffy and hard to and expensive to measure. But we've kind of obsessed with this idea of lower funnel metrics and and immediacy. And I, I worry sometimes that's sort of damaging our industry. So just to go back to what you were saying before, you sort of said something like that people should be at the centre of everything that we're doing as, a, as an industry. Yeah. And I suppose at the moment, the way in which we are able to measure people's activity is very blunt. I mean, we have some observed data that we can see what websites they've been on to, what category of websites. Um, yeah. We're getting to the stage now where we're able to extrapolate more sort of meaning from that and you know overlay data whether that be some psychographic data from a third party um to to try and get more insight into the individuals but is that the type of data that that you think we need more of in the future people-centered data the the quick answer is yes um i think a couple of things i think one there are lots of things that we have lots of data about which doesn't look like data on a spreadsheet um like instinctively 
um, people who are good at marketing are good at marketing. They know what a campaign is that feels right. They know a campaign that will perform well. They know a piece of creative which is um, working against the objectives just by being a human being that's lived on this planet and has good judgment. So I worry sometimes that we're kind of losing our gut feel. I think secondly, I do think that the beauty of this ad tech um, that we haven't really used that much is the way that it can be used. I mean, slightly further away than, than this year, but over the next few years, whether it's the kind of tracking of people and the knowledge of what they've seen so far whether it's kind of aggregating their behavioral data across different sites um, and creating campaigns that are aligned around people. So these are things like sequentially served ad units. Um, these are things like, um, you know, creative dynamic optimization, where based on how people are responding to ads, they're then served slightly different ads afterwards. I think all sorts of interesting things that interest uh, are possible, um, bringing sort of creativity and the creative and the understanding of that person together into one space. It raises all sorts of questions to do with privacy, mm. um, but that's a whole different debate. Let's just quickly touch upon privacy because there's a very different set of regulations. And I think the Senate has just voted in the US um, to allow telcos to um, sell personal information effectively to third parties, um, which is obviously completely at odds to um, the way we are in Europe within the EU where GDPR is set to come in next year and really restricts uh, any collection of data, but also makes it, you have to have explicit consent um, and that data has to be portable. So there seems to be two very different um, sort of modes of thinking about about what what is privacy. Where do you think we're going to end up? It's an extremely good question. Um, I'm always amazed at an industry how we, we end up having quite boring conversations and ignoring the things which are the real hot topics. And, and personalization versus privacy for me is probably the thing that we should be talking about all of the time. And we should be attacking and we should be having very, very informed, uh, empathetic discussions about. I'm glad you say that because that's what I talk about all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, we need more of this. I think it's easy to get extreme and I think we need to find a space in the middle. I think uh, at the end of the day, it's quite unrealistic, I think, uh, for consumers to expect privacy. I think we are growing up in an age where if you're getting a platform for free, you are the product. Uh, people seem to embrace that. People seem to be uploading their inmost thoughts to Twitter. They're checking into locations on Facebook. Um, they're sharing uh, their feelings on on uh, Twitter, on uh, you know Snapchat or something. I think it. I think the idea that these people somehow are shocked that people might know something about them, I think, is deeply naive. Um, so I think it's quite reasonable that people shouldn't have expectations of total privacy, and maybe they don't want them. In addition, a lot of this depends on how you ask the question. But most people prefer relevance rather than irrelevance. Most people want their Google searches to be personalized based on other searches they've done before. Most people like the idea of Google um, telling them the weather forecast or where they're planning on being the next day. For me, the entire industry needs to get way, way, way better at being very transparent and open about what we're doing with data and explaining the pros and the cons. We need to get much, much, much better at getting people to opt into this 
and 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 demonstrating what we're going to do with it. But more than anything else, people need a value exchange. Hmm. Um, people need to know why it is that they're having this data taken from them and what happens in return. Now, I am a deeply, deeply unusual and unrepresentative person, but I genuinely love the idea of more companies knowing more about me. Um, I'm quite a fortunate individual, and I would love to see ads for Burberry man bags rather than osteoporosis solutions. I would absolutely love my airline to know where I am. So if I'm running late for the flight, they can automatically book me on to the next one. I like the idea of my hotel having my phone number so they can send me a text when my room is ready. Um, for me, the entire future of advertising will kind of bifurcate into paranoid people that live in cabins in woods and sort of modern progressive um, people who understand the nature of advertising and would rather be served slightly fewer, way more valuable um, you know, adverts that are helping them sort of make decisions and navigate their life. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're probably going to get a ad now popping up from Burberry now that you've said that on here. <laughs> so hopefully I that works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really interesting. You, you covered quite a, a few particularly relevant topics there, I think, to what we've been talking about. So transparency. Yeah. P&G in the last month, they've been really driving this mission to bring greater transparency, greater accountability to advertising. Who do you think should be responsible for bringing in more transparency? Is it the brands? Is it the ad agencies? Is it the consumer? Is it the trade bodies like the IAB? I mean, where do you see the responsibility lying? I think with most of these issues, it's probably a bit of everybody. And I think Generally speaking, most of the things in the industry that we're either behind on or we haven't changed on uh, because we keep on sort of looking to each other to make that change. So when I see that no new ad units have been created, you know, publishers will blame clients and clients will blame creative agencies and so on. Um, I think we're in a similar situation with things like the entire poor structure of the advertising industry. Um, we're facing similar challenges when it comes to things like programmatic and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, I, the solution to all this stuff is to get everybody into a room who is important enough to make decisions and to hammer out solutions together. So I think it, it kind of lines with everybody. But quite often in the world, um, there are lots of people who are relatively happy with the current state of play and then not the first to join these meetings. And one of the other things that I wanted to, to pick up on was going back to this point about um, consent and you mentioned that you think the future is going to be about opting in um, yeah now we're I think we're sort of on the verge of producing much more data because right now yeah sure there's the web data we're starting to get some data coming in from our mobile phones some people are you know they have smart devices uh, smart watches there's data coming in there but it's about to explode with all of the connected homes connected vehicles uh, and a range of other devices you know still in the infancy so there's going to be this huge supply of personal data available but how do you think we are able to as advertisers get permission get the consent from those individuals to access that data i mean the very simple answer is to uh, explain the benefit of it um and to sort of stop this kind of paranoia um, you know, even articles about the FTC regulation and, and um, the ability to sell data. I mean, most of the stories kind of ignore quite important details, like the fact that most companies don't really have an interest in knowing that much about you as an individual. 
more often than not, it's about aggregating the data and, uh, you know, making it anonymous and then sort of using it as a bulk to understand generally how people behave. So I think we have a lot of paranoia about what companies are actually meaning to do with this stuff. Um, I mean, another point is most companies probably have too much data. Um, that sounds remarkably um, contrarian, but a lot of the clients that I speak with, their main problem is cleansing data and bringing data together from different sources. Um, I still have a kind of bank that routinely sends me mail to get me to uh, open an account with them. Um, they don't seem to sort of understand they already have one. Um, so most of the sort of problems are more sort of pragmatic in nature. But it's certainly the case that whether it's our wearables knowing our stress levels or our homes knowing what food we've got in the fridge, we are going to get incredible amounts of, uh, well, we're going to have the ability to have incredible amounts of data from people. And I think it will it will raise all sorts of interesting questions about whether people want to share all of that data and have the role of, of devices being this sort of ambient assistant that helps us make decisions, whether people still want to retain quite a lot of control over that and a bit of secrecy so they can be a bit more wild and strange. Um, but I think the key is giving people the control over that and a degree of education as well. Um, like it, it's probably a good idea for kids to start getting taught this at school um, and to have more of a sort of active role in understanding what this data means, what they should be worried about, what they shouldn't be worried about. Um, and giving them the tools to monitor it and control it more closely. In terms of retargeting, when you were talking about your bank and them sending you a letter for something you hadn't, you have no interest in anymore, yeah. it kind of made me also think about the classic retargeting um, yeah. pain point, which is when you talk to any consumer, they kind of say, oh, I get those ads, they're following me around. I went on a retailer website and looked at a kettle. I, I bought that kettle and now it keeps on pinging me every time, every place I go. Clearly, yeah. there's a level of um, inaccuracy built into that whole model. But do you think there's there's going to be a way that we can get more effective um, with our retargeting by being able to engage with the consumer, ask them questions about what they what they've bought, and maybe asking them about their per purchase intentions or get get better data about their purchase intention? There seems to be this battle in the industry between sort of the artists and the scientists and. For some reason, the sort of pendulum has swung in favor of the scientists at the moment. And without sounding too sort of grumpy or obnoxious, I'm amazed at how stupid a lot of the things that we appear to do are. Um, so to see that someone has bought a kettle and to then suggest more kettles to them, it's quite phenomenally stupid. Um, you know, it doesn't take the brightest, most empathetic, most creatively spirited person in the world to realize if you are buying a toast, uh, like a kettle, you may well be interested in a toaster at that time or a new mug or changing your tea provider or a new kitchen or something. Hmm. So I think somehow we need to find a way to marry the technical expertise of people who understand how those algorithms have worked and who understand what data is being used and the way that they've currently used that and then marry it up with, you know, the sort of Rory Sutherland's and Dave Trotts and, and maybe people like me who just have a better understanding of how real life people really behave. And as a consumer, what you would like to have happen. And by bringing those two things together, I think we can do amazing things. So whether it's understanding that actually all this data means that we're kind of shoveled into this funnel where the more sort of white T-shirts you look at, the more it's assumed that you just want to buy endless white T-shirts. Actually, we almost need a sort of randomizer function that realizes that every person that buys a white T-shirt might really want a red anorak 
because they want a chance to sort of express themselves in a crazy way on a, on a Thursday afternoon. I think we need to sort of marry together the sort of creativity and the science somehow. I want to come back to creativity in a minute because I think that's a, yeah. a, a rich topic to explore. But just in terms of the way in which Facebook and, well, I was going to say, and to degree Google as well, but particularly on Facebook with our advertising platform now, they are able to really offer quite small advertisers the ability to not only identify people in the target audience, but identify people who are like their existing customers and then buy a lookalike audience um, and go yeah. after them, which is quite a, a powerful way um, of finding the right customers, cutting out that wastage. What do you think the the future of of the rest of the of online advertising world is going to be? Trying to follow that same level of specificity that um, that Facebook has, or is there another route? We're going to see the market split into two. I, mean, I kind of alluded to this before, but there will be the sort of brand element and the performance element. And I think uh, if you're setting up a kind of direct to consumer mattress company. Then to start with, you know, or a kind of direct-to-consumer shaving club or um, pet food box or something, then you probably want to start out with some performance marketing. You probably want to get like a few sort of loyal users and get a bit of word of mouth spread. But I think there'll always be the need to marry the two together. Like there will be a point in time where in order to maintain a price premium, you'll need a brand in order to sort of grow the the category further away from those loyalists to start with, you'll need a brand. In order to have permission culturally to move into different verticals, you'll need a brand. And there is something um, inherently valuable about companies that do things which are mass market. Um, the act of seeing outdoor ads is the sort of 21st century way of exuding confidence. Mm. Um, you know, when you walk down a high street and you see banks, you know, which in the UK are normally Weatherspoons by now, um, the way that they have been constructed has been to show confidence and stature because, you know, the marble and the sort of Doric columns are basically ways of saying we're going to be around for a really long time. You can trust us. And I think we're sort of missing that in the digital age. Uh, I recently changed bank account with my UK account because the website was so crappy. I felt a bit like you know, if, if if this particular high street bank did their operations in a porter cabin in an industrial estate in Slough, you know, I probably wouldn't feel confident giving them my money. So it, in the digital age, things like websites and things like the way they do advertising is all part of an understanding of how real and significant these companies are. So, so people need to do both. I'm sure in the US there are also um, these challenger banks now which are starting up in the UK. We've got Tandem and Monzo. Uh, they've been making quite a splash recently, um, mobile first banks, um, and really sort of establishing a completely different brand to the consumer, almost saying you don't need bricks and mortar, you don't need those sort of Doric columns and, and the marble tops. <laughs> you need a really cool looking app with great UI, great UX, um, and it does everything you want and it's very intuitive and it uses a bit of machine learning. You know, Do you think those have a future or are they just catering to a very small group of hipsters at the moment? That's a very good question. I don't think I know the answer to actually. I think it's um, it's something worth thinking about. I think um, it's a lot easier to do the whole challenger thing in an area that doesn't require so much trust and properness. You know, it's relatively easy to set up a ride sharing app or to sell a new type of um, organic jeans. But if you're going to put your life savings into something um, or if you're going to 
you know, get healthcare advice from something, you do enter this sort of world where you need a bit more sort of confidence somehow. So um, mm. I, I can certainly see all of the reasons why these apps could become phenomenally popular. And you can certainly look at the entire uh, physical infrastructure that banks have to maintain uh, and realize that it's deeply inefficient because most people, unless you're a small business owner, never go into banks. So there's a very logical argument to suggest that these people will own the future. But I think we also need to remember that we're human beings and therefore, you know, we, we like things that we can touch and we do worry about stuff. Uh, so you could also sort of predict that they may have limited success. It, it'll be a very interesting area to look at. In the US, we don't tend to have the same landscape because banking here is still sort of largely set in the 1970s. So. Maybe maybe <laughs> in a couple of years then. Uh, I, I think one of the interesting stats I found about these challenger mobile banks is the, the there was a survey done about customer satisfaction with the actual experience of, of banking using yeah. um, the app. And actually, it was the high street banks with their greater resources, their greater understanding of the audience, their greater relationship, were able to very quickly get to a better user experience uh, for their customers than the challenger banks. Um, and I think yeah. part of what you were saying before about the brand perception, I think that actually has a part to play. No matter how cool and, and well-designed those apps are, the, it lacks the, the brand stamp approval. And so that then translates into customer satisfaction. Uh, as well it'd be interesting i mean um a company that i feel like we don't really talk about anymore but first direct were very interesting you know they it, arguably they were the sort of first challenger brand in the world almost and, mm. and the way that they had a relationship with hsbc it may well be that that kind of partnership or ownership or sort of brand structure is, is almost the way forward so i would imagine the sort of exit strategy of the kind of mondos of the world is probably that some big bank will buy them and then as a consumer, you'll end up with a kind of nice modern facade driven by sort of modern expectations with the sort of data and the security um, and the sort of consumer understanding of a big bang behind it. Somehow we've got onto banking, which is all good because they're very much <laughs> at the cutting edge of fintech. But just to bring it back to, to marketing, yes. um, one of the other ways in which you can signal authority, and you were kind of alluding it, uh, to it earlier on, was through content. And of course, um, that's content on a, on a website. So do yes. you think that there is going to be a, a change in the way in which companies are using content or have we already sort of reached peak um, content marketing? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, well, as someone that sort of leads a whole group of people here that are charged with making content, I have to be quite careful. Um, <laughs> of course, yeah. This industry always has problems and we, and we always think that everything that we do next is the most exciting solution to that problem. And we seem incapable of realizing that there's a right place and right time for everything. So social media was not the solution to everyone's problems. Uh, influencer marketing won't be the solution to everyone's problems and, and neither will content marketing. But for some people in some moments, for some challenges, it's perfect. And for a lot of people, it, it's completely hopeless. Um, so I think we need to get better at realizing the right time to use the tool, which is content marketing. So if you're a wonderful bank like Chase that does fantastic things and you're doing way more stuff in the community than people give you credit for, to use content marketing with a world-class production partner to run stories on how uh, much good you're doing is a fantastic idea. But that content that you make has to be the very best content in the world. Uh, like we do not have boredom in the world anymore. Um, I don't think I've been bored since about 2001. So this idea wow. that people, 
It's true. I mean, ever since I got a smartphone, you you realised you had the world's fingertip, the world's knowledge at your fingertips. Like, so that's that quote about the short attention span. That's making sense now. Yes. <laughs> Even now, I mean, uh, hopefully people are still listening, but you could be listening to an opera. You could be on Wikipedia learning anything. You could be watching an Oscar-winning film. You could be listening to your favourite music or watching your friend's sort of high school wedding pictures or something. Like, every, everything has to sort of compete with anything else for attention. And therefore, when you are making content, like, it needs to be unbelievably good. Otherwise, no one's going to watch it. Um, so the, the rewards are high, but we should not assume that it's easy. Um, the other thing, and I'm just sort of going on now, but we need to be really careful of how we measure it. Because in a world where we measure things like shares and likes, you know, everyone will quickly become a publisher of kind of cats doing funny things or babies falling over or something. Um, and actually, that may have no relevance to your brand whatsoever. So I think content marketing is something that we probably need to approach with a bit more strategic rigor. We need to be careful of our measurement framework. We need to consider if it's really the right thing for brands. Often it will be. Um, and then when we do it, we need to make sure it's unbelievably good. Because for every um, you know can winning uh, example there is, there's probably 15,000 videos on YouTube that have got no real views because it wasn't good enough to, to sort of capture anyone's attention. What do you think are the most important metrics that advertisers, media and creative agencies should be using to assess the campaigns they're putting out there? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about things like viewability, even attention. Um, but are those the sort of things which you think we're going to be looking at over the next couple of years? In an ideal world, which I don't know if it's theoretically possible or not, I've had some lively conversations with people. In an ideal world, everything that we do has to ladder up to sales or awareness or likability. Um, everything else is just the kind of interim measurement that correlates with that. Um, I think we probably need to get way better at ignoring those interim measurements um, and way, way better at focusing on what really, really, really matters. And I think there are two schools of thought. Some people think that with all this data and with advanced analytics uh, and with things like Facebook in theory being able to sort of see where people go, you can kind of close the loop on this stuff when you can start doing very accurate attribution and you can show that someone seeing something did something as a result. Um, I happen to believe, and, and I may be completely wrong, but I think a lot of that is very dodgy mathematics. Um, you know, I, I own a BMW now and a not insignificant part of the reason I own a BMW is because when I was about 12 and I had to do a project at school, I phoned up to get a brochure from BMW and the lady was really nice to me on the phone and she sent me like all of the brochures uh, and a really nice handwritten note. And if I'm now served an ad on my mobile device the same day that I went go into a dealership to buy a BMW, pretty much 100% of that sale would be attributed to a mobile ad that I might not have ever seen um, rather than the lady when I was 13. So I, I think we need to be mindful that we'll, we may never know what caused something to happen. And we may just need to sit back like we did in the 1990s and know that when you do good stuff and it feels right and it feels on brands and it reaches the right sort of people, that good things will happen. And we may have to sort of move back towards a much softer time like that where we go with our hearts rather than our heads a bit more. So let's pick up on that theme of creativity because we touched upon it briefly earlier on. 
yeah going back to the 90s i mean i worked in an ad agency in the 90s as well and remember the sort of the whole sort of ethos then which then got radically shifted by the move to digital um and it was very much a creative world it was centered around you know award-winning <laughs> yeah. creative now it's much more fragmented the the audience doesn't watch television the way they used to uh, print's much more fragmented as well and obviously digital's taking a big share of that so how do we get back to creating well uh, making very creative campaigns that resonate with the audiences is it about finding the next generation of people like the you know you mentioned a few of the um, names the Rory Sutherland's Ogilvy's that type and empowering them or is it more about being able to use the data that we've got in a more effective way I don't I don't think it's an all thing like I genuinely believe this is the most exciting time to work in advertising and I feel like people's faces don't look like that's the case everyone's been a bit sort of beaten up um we need to, what we've generally done so far is we've taken what we've made in the past, um, made it smaller because we now tend to watch media on smaller things. Um, sometimes we remove the sound, uh, sometimes we make it shorter, but we always sort of start off with things that we've done before. Um, and we need to completely go the other way. We need to look at our phones and realize they're the most personal things we've ever owned. We need to realize they know what we're planning on doing later on that day, what the temperature is, uh, whether it's raining, uh, how stressed we are, uh, what stuff we like, and sort of create a new canvas. And it's a really exciting canvas with loads of technology and loads of amazing graphics and loads of data, uh, loads of sort of interactivity in new ways. And we need to sort of create new ads around that. Um, I still think that most creative directors in big agencies still sort of dream of the film and they mm. still dream of a shoot in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, um, always. <laughs> and I think we need to sort of change that. I think we need to have like people that dream of the ad that automatically makes the phone call if you do the thing or the ad that turns into a mobile ad that if you a mobile coupon that if you send on to other people becomes more valuable. Or people need to sort of dream about the ad that when you turn the phone something amazing happens or becomes a game or we just need to sort of change our expectations of what creativity really looks like and what it means. Um, and we need to be more empathetic about slightly different attention spans. And we need to be more empathetic about the degree to which we don't have time to do this stuff and that we need help in making decisions. But I think, um, I think the best advertising ever known will happen in the future. And I just think it's going to look radically different to what we think it's going to look like. So, at the moment, the only way in which we can see how advertising has changed is looking back over it, what's happened in the last couple of uh, years, the last couple of decades even. What yeah. you're talking about then in terms of the, the future and this exciting opportunity to bring all those different elements of creativity and data together, that it is yeah. really exciting. But part of your role as head of innovation must be to go out and try and discover what are the new trends, what are the new technologies, how how do you start doing that? I mean, what what does your your day look like? When do you you know you you out kind of hanging out with teenagers, finding out what's up? How do you how do you get the latest innovation? Uh, I'm quite lucky, so because of my role, I get to travel quite a lot. I speak at a lot of conferences, so so part of it is just observing. Um, I know this sounds like a sort of pretentious Vice article, but you know I'll go to like a favela in Brazil and just sort of look at how people are behaving, and I'll talk to people about how they buy stuff. Uh, so I do quite a lot of, uh, I guess it's called data capture, but it's really just opening my eyes. Um, I meet a lot of companies that are interesting. I'm quite lucky. I've got about 260,000 sort of LinkedIn followers or something. So I've got an inbox, which is full of 
sort of weird and wonderful companies pitching themselves to me. Um, so anyone that sort of captures my attention, I tend to sort of meet up with. Um, so I, I guess I just, um, I bring together all of this stuff. I mean, the hard thing is making it happen. Like it's, it's actually relatively easy to come up with a, a new sort of e-commerce solution or a, a trust layer that can plug into insurance companies or a new way to send people money. It's actually quite easy to find the stuff. The hard thing is uh, taking that to clients and, uh, and, and to sort of new business pursuits and then to sort of make it happen. Um, I think we do quite a lot of evaluation based on assumptions of the past. Uh, so to do something that's never been done before, uh, we're not always set up that well to be able to to sort of evaluate it and invest in it. We've talked about a ton of things in the episode so far today. I really enjoyed <laughs> sort of going through all the different areas. But um, if I had to get you to say, what do you think are the top three trends or changes that we're going to see over the next seven or eight years? For one, we need to stop thinking of digital as being this thing. We still have it as like a department or someone's role. Um, you know, people are not buying things online. They're just buying things. People don't stream music. They just listen to music they love. They don't sort of watch YouTube. They just look at films that are funny. Um, so we need to sort of get that to the, you know, that's, that's going to be a kind of ongoing thing. I think we'll see a move more about experiences than brands which sounds quite vague but i don't really want to see an ad from an airline telling me that their airline is better i just want them to sort of invest in making the experience better so i want them to tell me when the flight's boarding and to uh, change my seat if i'm late and to um you know send me vouchers if the flight is delayed and to tell me where my bag is in real time i want them to tell me when to set off to the airport based on traffic conditions so i think i think we'll see a move towards companies using technology to create functionally better experiences uh, my last one and i sound a bit like everyone else now but i think artificial intelligence has got the ability to completely rewire our whole industry so whether it's using that to understand people better whether it's using that to create more personalized advertising, uh, whether it's using that to respond to people quicker and to serve people better. It, it's such a sort of profound technology. Um, and it may be a very long way off, but when it arrives and when we use it properly, I think it has the ability to sort of rewire everything about our entire industry. Absolutely. We've had a couple of speakers on who are sort of using AI, the weaker AI, as they call it, for things like yeah. chatbots at the moment. Yeah. And that seems to be a big area or data um, processing huge amounts of, of data and being able to ex, um, extract the meaning from that vast amount and, and really actually use it. It might sort of tie into what I was going to ask you next, which was, you know, for somebody who's starting their career in advertising and marketing now, or maybe a couple of years into it and listening to this podcast, what would you say to them? What are the areas which you find most exciting? And, you know, if you were starting your career now, what would you do differently? I think people are probably already doing this. I think we keep on thinking that we need to sort of tell people about new technology, but I probably learn more by spending eight minutes, uh, sort of 10 minutes with my eight-year-old nephew than I do at a tech conference. Um, so I actually think that most young people inherently have all of the skills and all of the curiosity they need. I think it's more on us. I think it's more on people uh, with a bit of power like us uh, to start sort of working in new ways and to sort of understand that these people know what they're talking about and to sort of embrace, embrace their curiosity and embrace the width of their knowledge. Um, 
a thing that I'm sort of working on at the moment is most of the big changes in the world have come from people that are not really experts. So whether it's, um, you know, Apple's very first phone they ever made was the best phone in the world. Um, probably the best car ever made was was Tesla's first car. Uh, the Wright brothers invented flight, even though they were bicycle engineers. Um, you know, often it takes someone from outside of a category who thinks about things in a vastly different way to really bring about the change. And so I kind of welcome the idea of people coming into our industry who've never really thought about advertising before and who don't have that sort of muscle memory and then seeing what they make of it. Um, I think it's an amazing industry. I think we sort of beat ourselves up a bit too much. I think we should, um, I don't know, just sort of chill out a little bit more and be more excited about all this stuff that can now be done. Yeah, absolutely. We, we forget sometimes how exciting it is. Yeah. And just to sort of round things up now, could you tell us how we can find out more about Zenith and some of the projects you're working on there and maybe how we can follow you and, and keep in contact? To follow me, I'm on sort of uh, LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, so I'm Tom F. Goodwin. Um, I'm on Twitter, which I mainly use for bits of provocation here and there. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin on that as well. Um, but I think I do okay on Google. So if you Google Tom Goodwin Zenith, um, then I'm sure lots of stuff will come up. I, I'd rather, for the moment, uh, I'm working on lots of things which are going to launch over the coming months. Uh, but rather than look at things I've made so far, I think it's probably most interesting to look at some of the pieces I've written. Uh, so places like TechCrunch, The Guardian, uh, Wired, GQ, um, Forbes and stuff. Have a look at pieces there. Um, and then the Zenith website, zenithmedia.com, is a good place to go for more information about the company itself. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the Clixie Digital Marketing Podcast today. We've talked about so many different aspects of the future. <laughs> it's been great to hear you know, all about your sort of background and all the things you're working on, where you go for the inspiration into those favelas in Brazil, and kind of all the ways in which that um, you're looking out for what the new areas are in technology that you can use in advertising and media. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for me. Find more episodes at clickz.com forward slash podcasts or follow me on Twitter at Tim for Change. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ and don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.